We are in John chapter 15 this morning, and if you don't have a Bible with you, we've got several back here on our resource table if you need to hop up and grab one, if you don't have it on your phone or something like that. John chapter 15, and we're going to be reading the first part of this chapter this morning. So this is John 15 verses 1 through 11, and this will be here on the screen as well. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be Full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give to you these things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord, church. So I taught on this text a few weeks ago at our members retreat. So if you were here, we did kind of a deep dive uh, on this passage. I'm not going to regurgitate all of that this morning, um, but this is a key text for us because as a church, we are entering into a season of focus that we're going to be in for at least the next two years. And in this season, we're going to be focusing on developing a rule of life as individuals, as families and as a church community. And this is a key text because a rule of life is basically a structure of habits and practices that we intentionally put in place in our lives so as to cultivate a life of abiding in the vine. And uh, like I said, I'm not going to go through all of this today. Instead, I'm going to I'm going to recap eight quick truths from this text that I talked about at our retreat 
for those of you who weren't there. Um, but we're going to go through those real quick. And then I want to home in on one verse in particular and really dig into it. So eight quick truths from this text. Um, before I mention these, let me just set the stage a little bit. Uh, this is a part of John's gospel known as the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, Jesus is just hours away at this point from being arrested and eventually crucified. And this really is his final teaching to the disciples, to his closest inner circle of followers before his crucifixion. And so think of these in some ways as his last words to them before everything goes crazy. Like everything is going to go nuts in just a few hours. Many of them are going to be scared for their lives. Many of them are going to scatter. One of them in particular is going to deny that he even knows Jesus. So things are going to get real hairy very soon. And so these are the final things that Jesus is saying to them before all of that happens. And what we said was a key thesis statement from this whole section is this, this idea that his disciples would so love one another with this uh, agape love. That's the Greek word, one of the Greek words for love. And it, it refers to the love of Christ, which is this self-sacrificing love, that they would so love each other that other people would see that love and would ultimately see Christ through it. That's been a big part of what he's been trying to drive home, and we see it here even in our text today. So that's just a little bit of context for what's going on here. Um, here are just eight quick truths from this text, and this is just a little bit of a flyover. Uh, first of all, God's intention for you is that you would bear fruit. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in this passage. His desire for you is that you would bear fruit, and it seems to be the, the case that he equates that love I just described uh, with this idea of bearing fruit. It may not be the, the bearing of fruit in and of itself may not just be self-sacrificial love, but it's definitely at the top of the mountain when it comes to bearing fruit. And Paul would later go on to say, look, if, if I could do all of these great things, but if I don't have this kind of love in my life, I have missed the boat. So God's intention for you is that you would bear fruit. Secondly, you cannot bear fruit on your own. It seems to be the case that Jesus is saying this is not something you can do by yourself. Last week in the section right before this, we saw Jesus saying, I'm going to send you a helper, and that helper is the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives if we are going to bear fruit. But even more than that, or in addition to that, I should say, in our text today, Jesus is emphasizing the importance of being connected to him. I think that means to his love to his sacrifice, to his teaching, if we are going to bear fruit in our lives. So that's third. We bear fruit by abiding in the vine who is Christ. That word abide means remain. Think of it as being connected to or rooted in the vine who is Christ. Next, we bear fruit even more by being pruned by the vine dresser who is God while abiding in the vine who is Christ. Right? My father is the vine dresser, and those who do bear fruit, he prunes so that they will bear more fruit. Next, if you aren't bearing fruit, it is probably because you are not abiding in the vine. 
just seems to be the case that if you're abiding in the vine at whatever level, that there is going to be some kind of fruit that's coming out of you. It may not be mass production, like it may not be this great harvest, to use that analogy, but there's going to be something coming out of you. And if there's nothing at all, it could be that there is no abiding in the vine for you. Next, bearing fruit glorifies God and verifies one's identity as a disciple of Christ, right? That seems to be true here. Jesus is saying that this love that you have for each other, this fruit that you're producing is going to validate or verify your identity um, and the reality that you are rooted into me. Uh, ninth, or I'm sorry, seventh, uh, Jesus is the model of abiding, so when we look at the example of the life of Christ, Jesus is so in tune with the Father that he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what the Father tells me to say. He says things like, I and the Father are one. Jesus is our model. He is our example. And he tells us that. And so we look to him to kind of get a sense of what it should look like for us to be so interwoven with him that it's almost like we become one. Obviously, as I said, that's not something we can do on our own. We desperately need his help if we're even going to move in that direction. But that's, that's kind of the like goal that we're going for is that we would just have this state of oneness with him where his desires are becoming our desires and the things he, he's taught are not just things we espouse, but they're actually things we do in our lives. And then finally, abiding is a source of joy. Abiding is a source of joy. Jesus says, if you're doing these things, my joy will be in you. So those are just eight quick truths that we find in this text that we talked about a couple of weeks ago at our retreat. Now, here's what I want to do today. I want to zero in on verse two. Look at verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the vine dresser, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. What does it mean to be pruned by God? What does it mean to be pruned by God? The first half of verse 2 we recognize as something that's not good, right? Not bearing fruit and being taken away. The text goes on to say that branches that don't bear fruit are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. And while we can speculate about the specifics of what Jesus means there, Jesus is clearly not presenting that as desirable, right? Are we all in agreement on that? With pruning, however... Maybe our response is a little bit more mixed because the word pruning itself doesn't sound positive, does it? Because it involves something being cut off, something being removed. Yet it is clear that unlike the branches that are taken away and thrown into the fire, it's clear that with pruning that this is actually a good thing. This is actually a positive thing because it somehow makes it possible for one to bear more fruit, which according to Jesus is the goal, that you would bear much fruit. Yet I'm not sure we understand pruning. And I'm not sure the church at large values pruning or even sees it for what it is. Now, uh, before we get into all of that, uh, why do trees or bushes even need to be pruned? 
Like, why is that even a thing? You know, Jesus uses all of these metaphors and analogies from the world of nature and the world of agriculture. Yet because we don't live today in an agrarian society, I think many of these things can go right over our heads. Like in general, we know what pruning is, but why, why does one need to do that? Why, why in the world does that happen? Well, well trees, it, it, like just take a lemon tree, for example, or an orange tree, like a citrus tree. Trees have all of this like internal energy, and they're going to expend it in one way or another. Like the purpose of pruning is largely to harness the internal energy of the tree and direct it towards one primary end, which is fruit production. And this happens in a few ways. And for one, pruning removes parts of the tree that are unhealthy, right? Parts that are diseased or insect infested or already dead. Pruning is going to remove those things so the tree doesn't have to expend any energy trying to heal those parts or somehow bring them back to life. So rather than struggling to maintain unhealthy branches, the tree's energy is sent directly to the parts that are healthy and is sent directly to fruit production. Secondly, pruning prevents the tree from becoming overgrown, um, creating more problems for the things around it, other plant life structures. Uh, we have this huge water oak in our backyard, which is the bane of my existence because it makes such a mess. And it like, I mean, I can just see dead limbs up in it that I'm like, Eventually, that's just going to destroy my patio. Like, it's, it's going to happen at some point. And I just got it pruned, like, two years ago, which was not cheap. And I'm looking at it going, man, it needs to happen again. Like, can we just get this thing out of here? I'm so, I'm so sick of it um, because we just constantly have a huge mess in our backyard. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's kind of overgrown. It can shade out other things. It, uh, the roots of a tree like that, if it's close to your home, can destroy the foundation of your home. It can drop a big limb. It can damage stuff. So there's just all kinds of problems that pruning can help with. But then, but then third, pruning directs the growth of the tree and creates what are called spurs. So when, new, when, when a branch or a limb gets cut off, Oftentimes, there will be new growth that will be produced. And to that end, if you want a tree to direct its energy to fruit production, you have to prune it because unless the entire tree is diseased or dying, its response to pruning will be to make more fruit. So, so I want to look at a few ways this morning that the Lord prunes us. And then I want us to consider a few truths about pruning that we can maybe lean on in difficult seasons. This is not an exhaustive list, by the way. You may be able to think of more ways that God prunes us, but I do think these four things are probably the primary ways that God goes about this work. Uh, the first way that God prunes us is through crisis. Crisis. Uh, this is, to me, just sort of a catch-all category for a number of things. A crisis is typically unexpected and has the potential to be life-altering. So it could be an illness. It could be a death. It could be a loss of other kinds, like the loss of a relationship or the loss of a job or the loss of your home or the loss of a dream of some kind. Um, it's when suddenly, kind of out of the blue, you find that things are not going to be what you thought they were going to be. Um, 
And my guess would be, as you think through your life, the events of your life, um, you can identify moments that were crisis moments. Our tendency is to want to compare those things to other people's lives, um, to maybe shame ourselves in some way into going, well, maybe the things I experienced were not as bad as somebody else, and I just need to shut up. But, but we all have crisis in our lives. We've all gone through hard things. We've all experienced unexpected things. Many of us have experienced the death of a loved one that was unexpected. Those are really hard seasons, and they, they alter things for us. They alter the course of our lives in some way. So crisis is a big one. God can use that in an incredible way. The second one I'm going to call disillusionment. Disillusionment. Um, this is also a kind of loss, but it's more internal, I think. Disillusionment is like a form of disappointment that comes from learning that something or someone was not what you thought. Lately, there's been a lot of this in the church, and uh, the term that has been thrown around for people who are kind of walking through a season of disillusionment is the term deconstruction. You heard that people who are like deconstructing their faith or deconstructing their experience with the church or with Christianity. Uh, most often spiritual deconstruction begins with some form of disillusionment. I thought things were this way, but now I've learned they're not. Or I thought these people were this way, but now I've learned they're not. And that's disorienting to us. Um, so, so these things often begin with some level of disillusionment. But I could take it back even further and say that disillusionment actually begins with a level of ignorance. Disillusionment actually begins with a level of ignorance. I thought something was one way, but then I learned it was actually something else, and that upset my previous uh, preconceived notion of how things were. I thought this person was loving and kind, but they treated me terribly. I thought this couple had a perfect marriage, but then I learned it was all facade. I thought that this church was like heaven on earth, and then I learned that the leadership was abusive. Right? I thought things were one way, they were actually some other way. That's rooted in ignorance. I thought something, but the reality was I didn't actually know how things were. Maybe I was making some assumptions, maybe I had been lied to, maybe uh, some kind of front or facade had been presented to me and I bought into it, but ultimately I learned the truth and the truth is disorienting and disillusioning. One thing to note here is that even though the word disillusionment is most often used in a negative context, I don't know that it's necessarily always negative. But rather, disillusionment is in some way an essential part of learning, isn't it? Right? Like in order for me to learn and grow, my conception or understanding of the world has to be challenged on some level. I might think I understand something fully until I meet someone who understands it better than I do, um, or until something happens that I can't fit into my like established boxes. And so if I want to grow, I have to deal with the disillusionment of letting go of my previously held convictions in order to like adopt and assimilate the new information I'm presented with. 
Also, it makes me question everything, right? Like, when I find out that something wasn't the way I thought it was in one area, it, it does kind of tend to make us go, well, what else don't I know? Like, what else am I not aware of? And so for some people, it can just throw everything into turmoil because we maybe come to the conclusion it's not just this one thing. Maybe I'm wrong about a host of things, and so I need to deconstruct everything to figure out where I've been misled or wrong or ignorant, and then I need to reconstruct on some level a new way of being. Does that make sense? So just disillusionment in general. I think that is one of the ways that God prunes us. Uh, the next one may not be something you expect, but the third one is marriage. I think one of the primary ways that God prunes us is through marriage. Um, I think this may be, may be unexpected for you because we... Um, I think we think, you know, well, God, marriage is nothing but positive, right, <laughs> until you get married. Um, to use another horticultural metaphor, uh, marriage is a graft. If you've ever seen plants or trees that have been grafted together, uh, a graft is where one plant is paired with another and, like, taped together, and the purpose ultimately is that the two would grow together and become a single unit. Um, but in order for that to happen, uh, a cut has to be made, like a wound has to be made in both plants, and then they have to just get stuck together, forced together, and then like taped up or bound together in some way. I think marriage is much the same thing. Um, if a marriage is going to be healthy, both parties have to die to themselves and take on this new identity as a single branch. We are no longer a separate branch. Branches, but we are now coming together as one branch. And the hard part of that is learning how to be one unit rather than two. It's one of the most difficult things. You might think you're fighting in your relationship about money or parenting or decision making or sex or your in-laws or whatever. But the reality is, is what you're really fighting about is not getting your way. So if a marriage is going to be healthy and bear fruit, both people have to change in some way. Both people have to adapt and grow into the new way of being. If both parties continue to behave as single, autonomous, self-focused people, the marriage will struggle or possibly fail. So marriage is inherently about change, and healthy change in marriage is largely about moving from primarily serving myself to primarily serving the other and them doing the same. Surprise, surprise, marriage is about agape. It's about self-sacrifice. And then finally, and this is another somewhat broad category, the last way I think God prunes us is through evil. And it may, again, sound strange to you because God is not the source of evil, but God does harness evil situations for our good. Uh, one of the best pictures of this is the cross itself. Um, betrayed, beaten, mocked, tortured, murdered, all evil. And yet God has used it for our good. Another great case in point from Scripture is the story of Joseph. And if you remember the story of Joseph, as a young boy, Joseph was favored by his father, Jacob, who was also known as Israel. 
Jacob, I mean, uh, Joseph's older brothers were jealous of him, and so they kidnap him, and they sell him into slavery. And then they convince their father that he's been killed by animals. Decades later, after a great deal of struggle, Joseph finds himself in the nation of Egypt. He rises to a position of power within the government. And when there is a famine in his homeland, his people group, the people of Israel, come to Egypt looking for food and water and shelter, and they find themselves in front of Joseph. His brothers, who assumed he's probably just dead by this point, find themselves groveling at his feet. And there's this famous line in Genesis 50 where Joseph tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Right? So you guys did this evil thing. You sinned against me, but God harnessed that in some way and worked it together to accomplish his purposes. So this is a big one, guys. And, and there are a few things here that I think relate to evil. So one of the sources of evil for us can be our own sin and the consequences of our own sin. Like God can prune us through our own sin and experiencing the consequences of our own sin. God can prune us through the sin of others, us having to deal with the ways that other people have treated us or sinned against us. Another big part of this too is just temptation in general, is just the experience of temptation, the battle against temptation, the fight uh, to not do the things I know I should not do. That's a big part of this process as well. So evil, marriage, disillusionment, and crisis. I think four key ways, again, not exhaustive, but at least four key ways that God prunes us. And understanding the purpose of pruning here is key. God's desire is never to like strip us down until we are nothing. That's not what a good gardener does unless the plant is just incredibly unhealthy. I think back to when we had Snowmageddon a couple years ago and the azaleas at the Norton Art Gallery. Some of you may remember they were, they were just horribly damaged by the freeze. And I thought, these are gone. And what the gardeners at the Norton did was they literally took those things down to the very base. They like cut everything off the top. And I was like, there's no way these are coming back. But they knew what they were doing and now they're flourishing once again. But like it took things being really unhealthy to take them all the way down to that level. Um, gardeners though are primarily creating opportunities for growth. In no way is a good gardener trying to harm the plant. Um, in the moment, it can seem painful, just like exercising can be painful. <clears throat> but if I'm going to get stronger, if I'm going to run farther, if I'm going to swim faster, I have to go through pain and discomfort in order to grow, right? If I've had a knee replacement or a hip replacement, some of you have loved ones who have been through that. Like, I have to do rehab if I'm, if I'm going to regain any kind of mobility, right? I've got to do the hard work of strengthening and growing. If my marriage is going to get healthier, I've got to take a hard look at my selfishness and change. I've maybe got to do things like go to counseling and be honest with other people and with my church family about the needs that we have. None of this is easy. 
but it is ultimately good. And so, so here are a few things we need to realize about pruning that I think can help us. One, pruning does not mean you've done something wrong. Pruning does not mean you've done something wrong. In, in Jesus's language here, pruning is not a form of punishment. No, no, no. Remember, God prunes those who are already bearing fruit. His goal for us is that we would bear fruit. And those who are bearing fruit, he prunes. Why? So that they might bear more fruit. And this is a point on which I think the church has really dropped the ball. Um, How many of you guys are familiar with what's called the prosperity gospel? Uh, the prosperity gospel is a, a big thing in, in some sects or corners of the church today. Uh, it's not true. It's a false gospel. The prosperity gospel basically says that if you're obedient to God, if you're faithful to him, then God is obligated to bless you with material things and good health. Right. So if I'm doing the right things, then God's going to give me like money and the car and the house and the job. And God's going to bless me with material things. That's not a true thing. That's not a real gospel. Um, And I think most Orthodox Protestant Christians would say, yeah, that's not what Scripture teaches. But here's the deal. We would say that, but yet on the other hand, many of us are prone to believing what I would call a reverse prosperity gospel. So we would say, I don't believe that as long as I'm obedient to God, he's going to give me great wealth. But yet at the same time, we're inclined to look at our own lives or the lives of other people and, and see like challenging things or frustrating things or hard things happening in their life and think, I wonder what they've done. I wonder why God's punishing them. Like, I wonder why they're walking through this hard season. So it's almost like a reverse prosperity gospel. I don't believe God's going to give me wealth if I'm obedient, but I do kind of think if I'm disobedient, he's going to punish me in some way. And that might be true, but it isn't always true, right? And it might be possible that God gives you wealth, right? But that's not always directly linked to your obedience to him. So... We need to see the things that I've described, like these ways that God prunes us, not as punishments, but as pruning, not as signs of one's sinfulness and God's subsequent punishment, but as the love of the Father who is carefully directing our path so as to make us as healthy as possible. Are we sinners? Absolutely. Like, have we done the wrong things at times? Absolutely. Are we deserving of punishment? Absolutely. But Jesus is speaking to believers here, right? Jesus is speaking to his disciples, right? And he's saying, those who bear fruit, God wants to prune you so that you can bear more fruit. So it is not just punishment. The idea here is that ultimately you would be healthier and more flourishing, Secondly, God has never promised that you and I would not face hardships, right? That is, again, that prosperity thing. God's never promised that we're not going to go through hard seasons as long as we follow him or obedient to him. The very next paragraph in John 15 begins this way. This is verse 18. If the world hates you, Jesus says to his disciples, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus is very clear with his disciples on this point. You guys are going to go through some hard things. People are going to seek your life. And the reality is, is that all of the disciples, with the exception of one, were murdered for following Christ. What you're walking into is going to be hard. Not only is it going to be hard, it's going to be more than you can handle. 
Many of us believe that God will never give us more than we can handle. Not true. That's a misconstruing of 1 Corinthians 10.13. Here's what Paul actually says in this verse. If you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians 10.13. Here's what Paul actually says. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. A couple of things here. First, the context of that verse is Paul describing the idolatry of Israel in the days of Moses. So he's not just talking about temptation in general, but specifically the temptation to abandon God in favor of worshiping false gods. But notice, even in that, Paul is describing pruning here. He says, you will be tempted, but it is an opportunity for growth. And it's not simply on your shoulders. He says, when you are tempted, God will provide the way out or the pathway for growth. So Paul isn't saying that you can bear the temptation simply because you're strong enough or you have the intestinal fortitude, but you can bear it because God has provided a way out. So no point is he saying God's never going to give you more than you can handle, right? That's a generalization of that verse, and that isn't what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that when you are tempted, God's not just going to abandon you in your temptation, but instead he's going to help you. So it's, again, it's his work. Next, um, I think this is why the, Old Te- or the New Testament rather holds up endurance or steadfastness as a mark of Christian maturity. James, in his epistle, probably says it best when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So what James is saying there is that there is an element of pruning that we should be like receiving with joy because we're recognizing that the vine dresser is taking an interest in us so as to make us more fruitful. It's probably hard to look at these situations in that way, and yet that's what is the case. It's like a math problem in a way. It's like trials plus testing equals steadfastness for those who are bearing fruit. Thankfully, our God is the ultimate master gardener. The goal is not uh, just that you would bear fruit, right? But his goal is that you would be nurtured in such a way that you would increasingly bear more fruit. And so this is what I think the New Testament means by endurance, um, this state of spiritual maturity that God desires for each of us. And then finally, pruning is not just about you. Um, it's not just about what God is doing within you. It's also about what God is going to do in others because of what he's doing in you. Does that make sense? Think about it. Why does a tree bear fruit in the first place? Is it of any benefit to the tree itself? Like, is it of any benefit to, like, an orange tree to make oranges? Well, no, no, no. Why why does a tree produce fruit? What's the primary reproductive engine of the tree, isn't it? 
It's how that tree is making other trees. God wants to take healthy trees and just make it abundant, make it flourishing. He wants to produce more Jesus within you, more Christ-likeness in you through pruning, and then he wants your fruit production to bless the lives of others. It's about disciples who are making more disciples, trees who are making more trees. This is not just about you being a more healthy, whole, joyful, peaceful person, even though I think you will be. It is about the little seedlings that you are shooting out, the fruit that's dropping from you and that other people are picking up and ingesting. In other words, agape, right? Jesus' overarching point in all of this, that a primary fruit displayed in the lives of his followers would be their love for each other, and that as a result, others would also come to love Christ. So, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now tell you the most hypocritical thing I've said in a while. Uh, I think... I think we should all be journaling uh, about the ways that God is working this out in us. It's hypocritical because I'm the worst journaler on earth. Um, I'm, I'm super inconsistent with it. And yet I think it would benefit all of us if we were able to like mark and to some extent catalog the ways in which God is pruning us so that we can see his hand at work over time and so that we to some extent can keep track of the people we are becoming and the fruit that is being produced in our life. Um, I want to ask us three questions this morning. I would highly encourage you guys to spend some time in meditation and maybe journal a little bit about these three questions. Um, but the first question is this, how is God pruning you? Um, as you think back, maybe on the current season or most recent seasons, based on some of the things I've described or maybe some other things, how do you think God is pruning you? What is either the crisis or um, the evil or the disillusionment or the relational struggles or the challenges with selfishness or temptation that you have seen manifest in your life? Like, what is God doing in your vicinity that is in some way creating like a friction point for you? What's he doing? Secondly, what are the spurs in your life? So again, spurs are places on a plant where a branch has been cut and like new pathways are forming, like new shoots are coming out. What's that for you? As you look back over your life, what are challenging seasons that you've had in the past but you look at them now and go, man, I'm so thankful to have walked through that. I'm so thankful that God did that. I'm so thankful that happened because part of who I am today is because of that. Like, what are those things in your life? And then what is the fruit you see being produced right now? Like, what are the ways that you see yourself slowly but surely starting to manifest more of Christ's likeness in your life? None of us do it perfectly. It may seem um, arrogant even to, like, consider that. But I do think we need to be cognizant of it. How has God called you to change? 
and how are you changing in that direction? Does that make sense? So how is he pruning you? What are the spurs you see in your life? And then what is the fruit you see as well? Let me encourage you guys to spend some time meditating on those questions, journal a little bit, and celebrate. Worship God for what he has done. Worship him even for hard seasons, because as James says, we know that this produces steadfastness in us. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. I pray, Lord, today that as we consider these things, you will bring to our attention the ways in which you are working in our lives so as uh, to prune us and make us more bountiful. I pray, God, that we would see this kind of flourishing uh, that Jesus describes and that we would find ourselves becoming more and more grafted into the vine who is Christ. Um, we thank you for your grace for us. We thank you for not abandoning, abandoning us in the hard things of life. But rather, Father, you've provided us a Savior, and you've provided us a helper in the form of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.